Hey everybody, it's Andy. Welcome or welcome back to the Gwinnett Church Podcast. At the end of this episode, we would love it if you would take just a moment to download the Gwinnett Church app where you can have access to all of our recent message content as well as find out about what's going on around here at Gwinnett Church. And the app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend. Most importantly, however, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. There once was a man who had two sons. The younger said to his father, Father, I want right now what's coming to me. So the father divided the property between them. It wasn't long before the younger son packed his bags and left for a distant country. There, undisciplined and dissipated, he wasted everything he had. After he had gone through all his money, there was a bad famine all through that country and he began to feel it. He signed on with the citizen there, who assigned him to his fields to slop the pigs. He was so hungry, he would have eaten the corn cobs in the pig slop, but no one would give him any. That brought him to his senses. He said, all these farm hands working for my father sit down to three meals a day, and here I am, starving to death. I'm going back to my father. When he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His heart pounding, he ran out, embraced him, and kissed him. The son started his speech. Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. But the father wasn't listening. He was calling to the servants. Quick, bring a clean set of clothes and dress him put the family ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then get a prize-winning heifer and roast it. We're going to feast. My son is here, given up for dead and now alive, given up for lost and now found. And they began to have a wonderful time. All this time, his older son was out in the field. When the day's work was done, he came in. As he approached the house, he heard the music and dancing. Calling over one of the houseboys, he asked what was going on. He told him, your brother came home. Your father has ordered a feast because he has him home safe and sound. The older brother stomped off in an angry sulk and refused to join in. His father came out and tried to talk to him, but he wouldn't listen. The son said, look how many years I've stayed here serving you never giving you one moment of grief. But have you ever thrown a party for me and my friends? Then this son of yours who has thrown away your money shows up and you go all out with a feast. His father said, Son, you don't understand. You're with me all the time. And everything that is mine is yours. But this is a wonderful time and we had to celebrate. This brother of yours was dead, and he's alive. He was lost, and he's found. Chances are uh, that you have heard, maybe you've read that story uh, before. It shows up in Luke chapter 15, uh, and it's one of Jesus's most 
famous uh, parables or stories that he ever told. It's, it's one of those ones that seems to have uh, transcended beyond just the Sunday school class or the, the Sunday morning sermon. It's made its way into, into culture. As a matter of fact, um, you know, almost everybody that you would ever talk to, and this is just, this is beyond even the United States. Like if you go almost anywhere in the world, uh, you, you would ask, and most people have heard of this idea of a prodigal son, right? And uh, it's one of those stories that has been shared and passed along and, and it has motivated people, inspired people, challenged people, confronted people, and even bothered people uh, because of what it communicates to us about the heart of God and honestly what ought to be the heart of the Christian faith. And, um, and so that's what we're gonna be looking at for the next few weeks uh, together. We're gonna be looking at this, this prodigal son story and why it's one of those ones that's been passed along and why it's one that seems to have stuck with us and uh, rattled so many cages. So we're gonna be looking at that for the next few weeks together. But uh, for today, uh, in 1962, uh, a guy named Thomas Kuhn, um, he wrote a book uh, called uh, The Structure uh, of Scientific Revolutions. Uh, has anybody read this book? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you giggle. And if you raise your hand, you're a liar. Um, and so, I know, I'm going to check your, your Goodreads. Um, and so, uh, yeah, yeah, it, it's called the, the, the Science of, or the, the Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And, um, and while most of you haven't read it, right, uh, myself included, I have not read this book. Um, most of you, you've heard of a, uh, a phrase that he coined in his book. And the phrase is that of a paradigm shift. Right? In, in 1962, when he wrote this book, he coined this phrase, a paradigm shift. And now a paradigm shift is, it's more than just like learning something new and adding that to your knowledge base, right? Uh, like we do that all the time and, and we kind of add it into our operating system, but it doesn't necessarily change the way we do things or the way we view the world. He says, but a paradigm shift is something that when you discover it, when you learn this thing, it, it then proceeds to change the way that you view everything else. That is a paradigm shift. It changes uh, the way that you view the world and the way that you interact uh, with things uh, around you, right? So it's more than just adding new knowledge. It's actually completely changes the way you view and interact with the world. And so some examples of some paradigm shifts that, that, that we've all experienced um, in our lives. One paradigm shift uh, happened in human history uh, when we discovered uh, germs, Right? The discovery of germs was a massive paradigm shift. For, for thousands of years, people would, would wonder, how is it that people get sick and why do people get sick? And for a long time, they thought, well, maybe it's you know, punishment from God. Maybe that person did something bad and that's why they get sick. And so they, they, they thought that. And then you know, as, as society advanced and moved along, then they thought it was maybe it was something in your blood. It was actually your blood was toxic. It was making you sick. And so in the middle ages, they would do this thing called leeching where they would literally stick leeches all over and they would be like, now drink his blood, right? Like, and you're like, what? And so they would just drain you of your blood, hoping that if they got enough of the bad blood out, uh, then your body would make new good blood and you'd be all right. And so I was thinking about, my son had the flu this week and I was like, imagine if we were just like, here you go, buddy, you know, like, and, uh, and he would freak out. And so, uh, yeah, like, like uh, but then somebody discovered, oh my gosh, there are these tiny microscopic organisms called 
germs and that's what's making people sick. How many of us are grateful for modern medicine so you don't have to get leached, right? Yes, exactly. And so that was a paradigm shift, right? The discovery of germs. Another paradigm shift that has occurred in human history is uh, when we discovered that uh, the, the sun and not the earth is the center of the solar system. Uh, that, was, that was a paradigm shift for a long time. People believed that um, everything revolved around the earth, that we were somehow like the center of the universe and that it all revolved around us, right? Like sounds like my children. And so, uh, yeah, like, like we thought that, but then only ca- uh, we came to discover, oh, it's actually, um, it's not all about us. We're not the center of everything. The sun is actually the center of our solar system and we revolve around that. I'm sure there's a sermon in there somewhere, right? Uh, and and, and so that was a, that was a paradigm shift. Uh, there's there's another paradigm shift that I was thinking about. Uh, it was when we discovered uh, that the Earth was round and not flat, or at least most of us. Although there's been a resurgence, you know what I mean. Um, I know if you're a flat earther, I'm so glad you're here today. So um, I know there's so much grace for you. Um, so. But, but, but when we discovered that, oh my gosh, the earth is round, not flat, it, it, it changed the way people viewed uh, things. It opened up uh, the, the desire for more exploration and travel and trade and human connection, right? And so it led to some, some massive discoveries uh, as a result of, of that. It was a paradigm shift. And, and I could go on and on. There's plenty of ones you could go all throughout human history and see uh, massive uh, paradigm shifts that change the way that we view life, the world, the way we interact with each other, the way we conduct ourselves uh, in the world. And that's a paradigm shift, right? And not just a new idea, but a new idea that changes the way we view everything else. And the reason why I'm talking uh, about that just for a moment is because in Luke chapter 15, where Jesus tells this, this story about the prodigal son, in Luke chapter 15, right, Jesus is introducing a paradigm shift. Luke chapter 15 is a paradigm shift in regards to how people would view God and what it looked like to conduct themselves in God's world, God's way, what his kingdom was like. And so uh, Luke 15, it's a, it's a paradigm shifting chapter in regards to understanding the heart of God and what ought to be the heart of the Christian faith. This is what's going on in Luke chapter 15. And the reality is we all have a paradigm, a religious paradigm, and we all have a paradigm of what we think God is like, who we think God is, and, and who we think God likes, and who he doesn't like, and how this whole religious system works. We've all got a paradigm, and, and that's an important thing to recognize because uh, your paradigm about who you think God is, and what you think he's like, and who you think he, he's like, it, it impacts a lot of things. It impacts how you think you can relate to God. It impacts what you think his character is like. It impacts what you think God thinks about you. It impacts what you think God thinks about them, right? Our paradigm is a really, really big deal. And a question that all of us need to consider is, okay, if I've got a paradigm, is my paradigm about God accurate? Is it correct? And that's what Jesus in Luke chapter 15, Jesus confronts lovingly the way that Jesus can do. He lovingly confronts our misconceptions and our paradigms. 
and he introduces a paradigm shift in regards to understanding the heart of God and the heart of the Christian faith. And so for the next three weeks, as I said, we're gonna be camped out in Luke chapter 15. And today, uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Uh, We'll be in Luke chapter 15. I'm gonna start in verse one, um, which is not where the story of the prodigal son starts. I'm gonna start in verse one. And the reason why I'm gonna start in verse one though, is to understand the impact of the the story of the prodigal son, you have to understand the setting and the scene. And so we're gonna jump in and we're gonna gonna see what what is the setting and the scene and what were the paradigms uh, that existed then so that we can understand what it is that Jesus is trying to teach us. And so I'm gonna be in Luke chapter 15 and and we'll start in in verse one. And this is how uh, the scene is set. It says, God bless you. Now the tax collectors and sinners, they were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. He welcomes them and eats with them. So let's get an idea of what's going on in this this scene. Jesus is sitting down and he's having a a meal with some tax collectors and sinners. And this is kind of two categories of people. Uh, The tax collectors were those people uh, who had had turned their back on their own people and were now working alongside the enemy occupiers of Jerusalem, which is Rome. And so um, these people were total social outcasts, the tax collectors. You did not associate with a tax collector. And then the sinners were people who were uh, culturally Jewish. Uh, they, they would have been that, but they, uh, they were living in ways that were um, unclean, unsavory, unsatisfactory, unrighteous, Right? And so they too were people that, that one, uh, especially one who was um, a religious person uh, would not have associated with. And here's Jesus and he's sitting down and he's having uh, a meal with these people, which apparently you guys, this is, this is something that happened repeatedly throughout the gospel. This is not a new thing for Jesus. As a matter of fact, in Luke chapter seven, just a few chapters earlier, uh, in Luke chapter seven, verse 34, Jesus apparently does this so often that he gains a reputation for it. And in Luke chapter seven, they actually say about Jesus, they call him a glutton and a drunk, which is not fair because he was neither of those things. But as you all know, uh, you are, we're often guilty by association, exactly. And so, uh, so Jesus is hanging out with these people and that, those are the things that they were doing. And so Jesus gets lumped in and his reputation becomes, they call him a glutton and a drunk. And then they say, and he's a friend of sinners. So apparently Jesus, this is not a new thing for Jesus in Luke 15. We've seen him do this before. You'll see it all throughout. If you read the accounts of Jesus's life, which are called the gospels, if you read through it, you'll see this becomes, this is a habit of Jesus to sit down with these people, to have meals with these people. And so this is the scene. Jesus is sitting down and he's having a meal with these people. He's having conversation with these people. And, and there's another group though. There's, a, there's some other people that are present in this scene that we need to understand. 
And those are the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they're also present. Um, and now they're not participating in the meal. And so I don't know how this whole scene like goes down. I don't know if Jesus is like eating on somebody's porch and then they're like standing there outside, which is so weird to imagine. Or if like, is he at a restaurant somewhere and they're watching? Like, I don't know, but apparently all these people are present, right? So Jesus is sitting down eating with these people. And then the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, these would have been the religious people of the day. The, the moral uh, elites, right? The religious elites of the day. Uh, they're sitting there and they're watching Jesus have this meal with these people and they are, they are infuriated. They're frustrated, they're angry, they're being judgmental, they don't understand it. And it says, and, and, and we see that in, in, in what they do. It says, and they muttered. That's a great word, isn't it? We should bring that back. I don't use that word enough, right? They muttered, right? Which is like, they, they were talking smack, right? They're, they're gossiping, right? Like Christians, you do this all the time. You just call them prayer requests, right? But like, um, I know, if you could just pray for my neighbor's son, I already is doing though, you know, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And so, so they muttered, right? They're, they're muttering, they're kind of talking bad, they're gossiping and they're going, they're going, can you believe this guy? Like, are you serious, Jesus? Like, like, can you believe this? He, and look what they said. He welcomes, which this is a big deal. The word that's used there, it's a word that, um, that actually means uh, to, to open yourself up relationally to somebody, right? Uh, to, to relationally invite somebody in. That's, that's what it was, was connotating. So he, he has opened himself up to connect relationally with these people. He welcomes them. It's almost, he's befriending them. And not only that, it says he eats with them, which this is like, like this is a huge no-no in that society. You see, because you guys, in ancient Middle East culture, a meal was a big deal. A meal was, was a big deal. And honestly, um, if you've been to the Middle East, it, it's still a big deal, but it was even, I mean, it was even ramped up then. Like to eat with somebody was like a, a sacramental act. It, it, it was a big deal to have a meal with someone else. It was, to, it, was to, it was to say to them, hey, I accept you on a deep level. It was to put your stamp of approval on their humanity. To eat with someone was to say, I see you. I value you. I respect you. It didn't mean necessarily that you agreed with that person, but it meant that you, hey, I see you. I value you, I respect you, I, I, I'm treating you with dignity. That's what it meant to have a meal with somebody. This is a really big deal. And so they're looking at Jesus and they're going, Jesus, how can you do that? What are you doing? You are opening yourself up relationally to these people and you're having a meal with them. You're, you're, you're giving them respect and value and dignity and, and, and they are mad. They are big mad about this. And the reason why is because this doesn't fit with their paradigm, right? They had a paradigm of who God is and what God is like and who God likes and who God doesn't like and how all these things work. And this, you guys, this certainly was not it, right? Like this did not fit their paradigm. So they're watching Jesus have this meal and they're looking at him and they're going, Jesus, this is not what God is like. These are not the type of people God likes. 
this is not how all of this works. What are you doing? And the reason why this was messing with their paradigm, you guys, is because they recognize Jesus to be a religious person. They're like, man, he claims to be a teacher. We've heard him preach. And he's actually, he speaks like one who has authority. He, he, he seems to understand the law and the prophets. He seems to know what he's talking about. And on top of that, he does miracles. And so he's a miracle worker. And so he's doing all these things that I can't explain, but it makes me think uh, that God must be with him. But if God is with him, why is he with them? Because those people, God does not associate with. We know that. And so it is messing with their paradigm. They're going, I, I, I don't know what to do with this, but it's really, it's really ticking me off. I can't, I can't do this, Jesus. What are you doing? Why, why would he spend time with them? And you guys, um, before you're too harsh, it's, it's, it's always so easy in these moments, whenever we talk about the Pharisees, they always get painted as like the bad guys. And whenever you read in your Bibles, you're always like, judgmental jerks, that would never be a Pharisee. You know what I mean? Like, it's always easy to like, like, like look down on the Pharisees and to be like, oh my gosh, like we went to losers, you know? Like, and so it's easy, it's easy to have that attitude towards the Pharisees. But before we get too much on our high horse and look down on them, try to put yourself in their shoes. Their, their paradigm for how they think things work, how they think God is, who they think God likes, what the, how they think the whole religious thing works, right? What they've grown up believing, what they were taught, what was passed on to them, right? Is being challenged and confronted. And I don't know about you, but when your paradigm, when your worldview gets challenged and confronted, it can be infuriating, can it? It can be so frustrating. When, when, when the way you believe things work, gets called out when what you were taught and what you've believed and how you've behaved all of a sudden gets confronted and you begin to discover that it might be incomplete or incorrect, that is frustrating, right? I mean, has anyone in here, have you ever had your parenting challenged or confronted or criticized? Like you're sitting with some friends and they're like, oh my gosh, can you believe so-and-so and they homeschool their kids? Ah, you know what I mean? And you're like, I do that. What are you familiar with that? You know what I mean? Like, and you're like, you're like, you're like what, what are you saying? Like, I can't believe they're doing that with their kid. And you're like, oh, I do that with my dog. Oh, like, and, and now you're like, oh, it's like, it's like your paradigm, the way that you view, the way that you think things ought to work, what you've believed, what you were taught, what your parents did for you is now all of a sudden you got a group of people that's saying that that's wrong. What do you do? Yeah, you're like, well, I'm never hanging out with you again. It's, it's infuriating, isn't it? Or how about this? What about when, when you've been working somewhere and you've been working there for a long time and, and you've worked hard and you've, you, you've, you've done a good job, you've become an expert in your field and now all of a sudden your company begins to bring in some new people and either they come from a different industry or it's some young whippersnapper straight out of college and now they've got all these new ideas and they're completely disregarding the way that you've learned how to do it and the way that you were trained to do it and the way that you've become an expert in it and now they're doing it a completely different way. And you're like, like, what are you doing? And you feel so offended. 
You're like, whoa, like, like you're completely disregarding. That's not the way this works. And you come home and you complain to your spouse and they're like, I know, I'm sorry. And you're like, yeah, no, you don't understand. You know, like it's infuriating, right? Like when all of a sudden, like the, like your, your paradigm, the way that things work for you, all of a sudden that gets challenged. It gets put to the test. It gets confronted, right? Or maybe we'll go there. Maybe your politics. Somebody confronts it and they don't just disagree with you, but they go so far as to paint you as the villain. And now you're like, whoa, what? Like it, it's frustrating. Come on. Some of you, you have distanced yourself from people over something like this. Some of you have cut off relationship because of something like this. When your worldview, when your paradigm, when it gets challenged, when it gets confronted, when somebody criticizes it, it is frustrating. So before we get on our high horse and we look down on the Pharisees and say, I can't believe them, just remember, Jesus is coming in and he is confronting and he is challenging everything they've grown up knowing and believing is correct. And so just try to put yourself, just for a moment, just try to put yourself in their shoes and try to remember, there's a little Pharisee in all of us, myself included. And so this is the scene though, right? Jesus is eating with the tax collectors and the sinners. It's not who he's supposed to be hanging out with. The scribes and the Pharisees, they're looking in, they're going, this is not how this works. This doesn't fit our paradigm. And so they mutter. Now, Jesus, as Jesus does, he knows what's going on. He understands, uh, and it doesn't say if, if, you know, if he just overhears them or if he just like knows, you know, Jedi Jesus, when he's like, I know what you're thinking. You're like, what? You know, but like Jesus, it says like, he knows what they're thinking. He knows what's going on. Maybe he can hear the conversation happening. And it's kind of like, there's some grumbling, some rumbling uh, around him. And so he knows what's going on. And, and now he has, he views this as an opportunity. This is a teaching opportunity. I'm going to confront some misconceptions and hopefully I'm going to speak in and I'm going to shift some paradigms because you guys, and you've heard us say this before. One of the reasons for the incarnation, one of the reasons why God puts on flesh and blood in the person of Jesus and dwells among us is not just to save us from our sins, although that is the primary reason, right? But also he came to illustrate and demonstrate who God is and what God is like. And so Jesus hears this conversation going on and they're grumbling and they don't understand and their paradigms are being challenged. And so Jesus views this as a teaching opportunity. And so in true Jesus fashion, Look what he does. It says, then Jesus told them this parable. Well, psych, there it is. He told them this parable. In true Jesus fashion, right? There's a heated conversation going on about deep theological things and the truth of the world. And Jesus tells a story. It's one of the things that I love about Jesus, but some people find to be so infuriating about Jesus in these moments of like deep, like, like, like 
theological and like, like societal conversations and things that really matter in the world, Jesus tells stories and asks questions. People are like, what should we do? And he's like, I don't know, what do you think? You know, and you're like, what? That's what I'm asking you. Um, or, or he tells a story and this is what Jesus does right here. He tells a, a parable and just so that we're all working with the same um, definitions, you guys, a parable is simply a made up story that teaches a spiritual truth. It's a made up story that teaches a spiritual truth. And so he's gonna tell three made up stories, right? Like Jesus does not know an actual shepherd uh, who left 99 to go find one. Like, and, and the prodigal son is not a true story. It's a made up story that teaches a true thing, right? And so Jesus tells these three stories and, and maybe you're out there and you're wondering, why does Jesus uh, answer these deep moments with stories and questions? Like, why is that the way uh, he did things? Because he was a master at telling these stories and through those stories, he would expand people's view of what God was like and who God liked and, and how God's kingdom worked and what it looked like to live in God's world, God's way, right? Like, like Jesus would use these stories to do that. But some of you are like, why wouldn't he just give a direct answer? Answer, why the, why the stories, why the questions? And, and there's a lot of reasons why Jesus used stories. But I think one of the biggest reasons that Jesus used story, you guys, is because stories, stories are powerful, aren't they? Like stories like have that ability to like get down in your bones, you know? They, they have the ability to like stretch your mind and like stir your heart, right? Stories, more than just teaching an idea, when you tell a story, you invite the listener in you invite them in to find themselves in that story, to place themselves in the middle and to imagine themselves as somebody in the story and to think about how they might feel and how they might respond. In short, you guys, stories have the power to shift paradigms. Stories, maybe unlike anything else, stories have the power to shift paradigms. And so Jesus he hears the muttering of the crowd. He sees the frustration. He can see people can't compute why he's doing what he's doing. Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? What are you doing, Jesus? And he views this as a teaching opportunity to confront some misconceptions and to show people the heart of God. And, and, and so he tells a story and it's not just actually one story. He actually tells three stories. He tells three stories. They all have the same point, but he's gonna tell three stories. And um, for for the sake of our time together uh, this week, I'm just gonna read to you the first two stories. And then in the next two weeks, we're gonna just plant ourselves in that third story, which is the prodigal son story. But, but Jesus tells these three stories and, and the first one, it goes like this. It says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one, one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and he says, rejoice with me, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, Jesus says, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Jesus starts uh, the, the story, his stories, his teaching moment. He starts with a familiar scene in this culture, right? A shepherd with some sheep. And he goes, now just imagine with me for a second. 
Imagine there's a guy, he's got a hundred sheep and one wanders away and he says, what do you think that guy does? He's like, yeah, of course. He goes and he finds his lost sheep. He goes after him. And there, you'll see that there's a rhythm to these stories. All three of the stories, you're gonna see that there's something that's lost as we underlined. There's a pursuit. There's something that's found. And then there's a celebration. This is the rhythm. And Jesus is teaching here and, and he says, hey, just like, when a sheep wanders away, when a person wanders away from God, when a person wanders away from God, disconnects relationally from God, that's what Jesus means when he says lost. So many of us get so offended thinking that lost means less than. It doesn't mean less than. It simply means disconnected. And so don't get offended by us using that term lost, right? It's not a less than label simply means disconnected relationally. And Jesus says, when, when one wanders away, what do you think, what, what does a good shepherd do? He's like, goes and gets his sheep, duh. And Jesus is like, exactly. That's what God is like. And that's what his kingdom is like. God goes after lost people. You wanna know why I'm doing what I'm doing? That's what God would do. That's what God would do. And this is what his kingdom looks like. And when he finds one, and when one comes back and gets connected relationally to God, he goes, we throw a party. He's like, that's what the kingdom of God is like. He keeps going though. He tells another story. He's like, doesn't even give you time to breathe. He's like, all right. He says, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. He says, doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. He says, in the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Over one sinner who repents. Now Jesus has changed the illustration, you guys, and now he uses money. I think the reason why he changes it from sheep to money it's because money speaks of value. And Jesus wants you to know that God not only loves and pursues lost people, he values them. He values them. And I think in, in, in the context of this parable, right, the assumption is she has 10 lost coins and they all are worth the same amount. And so Jesus is letting them know, hey, you know what? The lost coin is just as valuable as the found. It's not less than it's not better than, it's better off because it's found when it gets found, but it's not better than. And so he goes, man, God loves and values lost people. And he says, that, that is what God is like. And that is how his kingdom works. And so Jesus tells these two stories in tandem He's gonna crescendo on the third one. The third one, he begins to talk about people and he humanizes the whole thing and it gets real personal and it gets real raw and it gets real relatable. Uh, but, but for these first two, right? Jesus has communicated and he's teaching us something about what God is like and what his heart is like. And so what is Jesus teaching us about God in these two stories, you guys? What is Jesus teaching us about God? What is he teaching this crowd about God? First thing that you need to know that Jesus wants us to know about the heart of God is that God loves lost people. 
God loves lost people. And I hope that you'll hear me in the room today. And again, I hope that you won't be offended by that term lost because lost simply means disconnected relationally. And so it is not a less than label. Lost simply means disconnected relationally. And what Jesus wants you to know is that your heavenly father does not want any of us to be disconnected relationally. Lost, that describes where some of us are at. It describes where all of us have been. And what Jesus wants us to know is that God loves lost people. Not only does God love lost people, another thing that Jesus wants us to know about the heart of God, not only does God love lost people, but his love compels him to pursue the lost. God pursues lost people. He goes after people that are relationally disconnected from him. He goes out of his way. He risks much. He goes after the lost because when you lose something of value, you go looking for it, don't you? Can any of you think of the last time you set your phone down somewhere and you forgot where it was? And you blamed your spouse and you screamed at your kids and you flipped the house upside down and it was in your pocket? Right? When you lose something of value, when you lose something that matters to you, when you lose something that's important to you, you go looking for it. And Jesus says, that's what God is like. He loves lost people and his love compels him to act. He doesn't say, work your way to me. He says, I'll go looking for you. And his pursuit, you guys, is our only hope. I love that in the beginning, Jesus tells these first two stories and he uses a sheep and a coin because the sheep is too dumb to find its way back and a coin is too inanimate to do anything to get itself found. What is Jesus saying? God loves lost people. He pursues lost people and his pursuit is our only hope. God's pursuit is our only hope, not our good behavior. So, what is he teaching us? God loves lost people. He pursues lost people. And the last thing, God celebrates when even one lost person is found. And when he says found, he doesn't mean like God was like, oh no, where'd they go? When he says found, he goes, when relationship is restored. When relationship is restored between God and a lost person, when relationship is restored with, between God and somebody who's wandered away, when relationship is restored with God and somebody that he loves and values, but they never knew it, when relationship is restored, God celebrates. Jesus is looking at this crowd. He goes, you wanna know why I hang out with tax collectors and sinners? Because that's what God would do. You wanna know why I go out of my way to have meals with people who are nothing like me? Because that's what God would do. Because that's what your heavenly father is like. And y'all, when he does this, it is a total paradigm shift. This is not a new idea stacked on top of some other ideas that they had had. It's a complete departure from everything that they knew. They thought they knew what God was like. They thought they knew who God liked and they thought they knew how all of this worked. And Jesus says, I know you thought you knew what he was like, but he's different. God's different than you thought. I know you think you know who God likes, 
that I just want to know, I just want you to know, you're going to need to draw a bigger circle. You're going to need to expand your God box. You're going to need to reach a little bit further because God's love and his grace, it's bigger than you thought. He goes, I know, I know you think you know how all of this works. I know you think it's about good behavior, but I'm just telling you, it's different. It's different. It's about God's pursuit of us. It's not about your good behavior. It's about God seeking and finding. He goes, oh. he goes, what God is doing in the world is so much bigger than you guys ever imagined. And who he's inviting is so much bigger than you ever imagined. And now I know some of you, so before you send your emails, I know some of you, you've already got your email typed up. What about repentance? And so trust me, we're gonna talk about repentance. And Jesus is gonna talk about repentance. And, and, and what Jesus is saying here, he is not minimizing sin. Jesus is not minimizing sin. He's not minimizing confession of sin and the need for repentance in all of this. We're gonna talk in the next couple of weeks, we're gonna talk actually next week about the role of repentance in, in our faith and in our relationship with God. So please don't send the email until next week and then you can send it, right? But like, but listen, don't, don't move on. We're gonna talk about that. And Jesus is, not, Jesus is not saying that anything and everything goes when it comes to God. What Jesus is saying though, is that what God is doing and the way that God is and the people that he's inviting, it's way bigger than you thought. And it's way different than you thought. And Jesus is going, hey, not, yeah, not anything and everything goes, but anyone and everyone is invited to come and connect relationally with God through the person of Jesus. And so he's going, hey, there are people that many have been counting out that God wants to invite in. There are many that have been, had the door slammed in their face that God wants to open the door back up to. There are many that people have written off that God is wanting to pursue. So he goes, come on now. It's a paradigm shift. God is different than these people had thought that he was. His love is bigger, it's wider than these people had thought that it was. And what he was doing in the world was so much greater than anything that they could have imagined. It's a paradigm shift, a complete and total paradigm shift. And when you get this, when we get this, when we begin to understand the heart of God as described by Jesus, when we understand this paradigm shift and we embrace it, you guys, when we understand God's heart, it changes things for us. It changes the way we view ourselves, certainly. It changes the way we view ourselves when we understand this paradigm shift that Jesus introduces. It changes the way we view ourselves because all of a sudden we have a greater understanding of our own lostness and need for God. And then we also understand that we are loved and pursued by God. That's incredible. So it changes the way you view yourself. You recognize your own lostness and at the same time you recognize you're loved and pursued by God. It changes the way you, you view and you treat others because you begin to see people the way that Jesus saw people. And when you see people the way that Jesus sees people, then you begin to treat and pursue people the way that Jesus treated and pursued people. And so it changes our interactions with one another. Our conversations are more curious and more full of grace. And not only that, not only does it change the way we see ourselves and how we see one another, it also changes the way we practice our faith. 
All of a sudden, when you understand this paradigm shift that Jesus introduces, we can no longer come to church and go through the motions and just ask the question of what's in it for me or what do I gotta do? Now, all of a sudden, when you know that you have been loved and pursued by God, then the only natural response is for you to go and love and pursue people the way that God has loved and pursued you. And so you practice faith differently and you join in the search and you join in the finding. And then you celebrate like crazy when the people you've pursued come home. It's a paradigm shift. I don't know what you think God is like. I don't know who you think God likes. I don't know how you think all this works. But according to Jesus, God loves lost people. He pursues us in our lostness. He finds us and he celebrates when he brings us home. What if we believed that? It might just be a paradigm shift for you and for me. Now, as I said, next week, we're gonna jump into that third story and, uh, and we're gonna look and there's three things we're gonna learn about next week. We're gonna learn more about uh, what it actually means to be lost and that we're gonna learn next week that there is more than one way to be lost. And so I want you to come back next week ready to learn about that. We're gonna talk about there's more than one way to be lost. We're gonna talk about the role of repentance in our relationship with God. And then we're going to discover uh, the invitation, a life-changing invitation that, that God extends to each and every one of us. And so I hope you'll come back next week. But for this week, I got a couple questions. Um, and by a couple, I actually mean a few because a few is more than two and there's four. And so uh, I've got a few questions that I would love for you to consider this week. You can take pictures of these, you can talk about them. Um, but I'd love for you to think about these questions this week uh, for discussion, right? Uh, what do you think God thinks about when he thinks about you? It's an important question for you to ask ourselves. And why? What has shaped that view? What paradigm has shaped that? Second question, have I missed who God really is and what he's really like according to Jesus? Have I missed it? Is my picture of God different than what Jesus describes in Luke chapter 15? Third question, is my heart aligned with the heart of God? Or are there people that I'm counting out that God is wanting to count in? Is my heart aligned with the heart of God? And the last question is, is my life an accurate reflection of who God is and what God is really like? The way I kind of wanted to word that is, have I ever been accused of the same thing Jesus is? I've been wrestling with that. I'd love for you to think about these questions this week maybe in preparation for next week as you come, check out Luke chapter 15, read it during the week. And then uh, we'll come and we'll jump into the story of the prodigal son uh, next week. I'd love to pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you that you love us um, even when we wander and we stray and we're lost in our relationship with you. God, thank you so much that you care about us. You love us, you pursue us. Thank you that you don't give up on us even when we are tempted to give up on ourselves. Thank you for that. 
And God, I just pray that you would help us, help us to see you rightly, help us to see you clearly. Um, and God, help us to, to live out our faith in the way that Jesus instructed. Um, yeah, if it's necessary, God, would you shift our paradigms so that we can live in love more like Jesus. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen and amen, amen.